Good morning, Gospel Hope, and Merry Christmas. Uh, as Rod said, we're going to be continuing our series here called The Promised One, where we have been looking at some Old Testament passages that in advance predict kind of the time and the circumstances of the coming of the Lord. And actually today, we are going to look at one of the more obscure prophecies of the Old Testament in relationship to the coming of Christ. And I hope today that you will maybe learn something new and be challenged to appreciate Jesus in a new light. So at the beginning of the service in particular, I need you to put your theological thinking caps on and track with me as we walk through what the scripture says about this appearance of the star. So can we pray for a minute, ask for the Lord's help, and then we will dive into this passage this morning together. Lord, thank you. Thank you preeminently for sending Jesus into the world to become man so that he might accomplish your mission to save sinners like us. I pray today that you would use your word to point us to Jesus in profound and new ways. I pray, Lord, that you would hide me behind the cross of Christ, that you would exalt the person and the work of your son, and you would cause us to see Christ clearly. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, in the English language, there are tons and tons of expressions that deal with a star. So, I need your help with me. Just participate with me. You'll see how this goes here. Uh, we have things in English that we say like, when you wish upon a star. She is such a rising star. Aim for the star. Thank your lucky it's written in the, that guy is a rock. Whoa, 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 I didn't get there yet. Ah. That guy is a rock. Very good. In many of these expressions, stars commonly symbolize power or significance or influence. So in light of that, that that's just kind of embedded into the imagery of star, it's not surprising that when you read in the pages of the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, that a star plays a prominent role in the birth of Christ. The star makes its appearance in Matthew's gospel and is inexorably linked with the mysterious wise men. So we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Herod, the wannabe king of the Jews, is agitated by the wise men's summons, and he gets the biblical scholars together to gather more information. Herod's like, I don't know about a king of the Jews, and I don't know about the stars. So he gets his Old Testament scribes together, and he asks them, what's up? Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. So the theologians, after kind of studying the Bible, come back and they tell him plainly, Matthew chapter 2, verse number 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because what is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
So Herod has this new information, and armed with it, he cunningly returns to the wise men, and he puts on his sappy, syrupy voice, and he comes and speaks with them. Verse number uh, 7 of chapter number 2. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Well, if you know the story, you know that Herod had no intention of worshiping Jesus. He wanted to kill him. But in spite of Herod's impure motives, the wise men take the information that they gave him, that he would be born in Bethlehem, and they head to the city of David, guided once again by the intrepid star. Verse number nine. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. So once the wise men found the toddler Jesus, they worshipped him and offered him the valuable gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Then, preserved from Herod's schemes by a dream, the wise men disappear. And we never hear from them again. That's the end of the story. No more star, no more wise men. Verse number 12 of Matthew chapter 2. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now, while the wise men are, are certainly a fascinating and important part of the nativity story, there has always been something perplexing to me about their role in the Christmas narrative. I don't know if it's ever bothered you, but it's bothered me. Namely, this question. How did they know to follow the star? Did you ever stop and think about that? Like, nobody else seems to know about the star. But somehow, these men from the east know about the star and they follow with it. Because unlike the other prophecies about where Jesus would be born, like in Micah chapter 5, verse number 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come for you who will be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. There it is, plain in black and white. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Or the prophecy that Jesus would be born of a virgin over in Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. There seems to be no explicit predictions that a star would accompany the Messiah's birth. So how did the wise men know? How did they know that they were to look for a star? And how did they know what it meant? Well, here's the idea. It's certainly possible that the Lord appeared to the wise men in a dream or a vision. I'm certainly not close to that at all. Maybe that's exactly what the Lord did. He just showed up and he said, look for the star, follow it, you'll find the Messiah. That may have happened. But I think something more is going on. For while there is not a clear prediction in the Old Testament that the Savior's birth would be announced by a star, there is a powerful allusion found in the text of Scripture that we read. Numbers chapter 24, verse number 17, and it says this, A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. In light of the fact that the wise men were seeking the king of the Jews... Okay, that's very Israeli. And they were going to the geographic region known as Israel. 
it seems to me that they were probably acquainted with this passage of Scripture. That maybe they had read the Old Testament and because they were very fascinated by astronomy and things like that, it resonated with them and they began to look for a star that would appear and direct them to this ruler, this scepter that would arise out of Jacob. But regardless of how the wise men learned about the star, the larger question is simply this. What was the significance of the star? Why did God, in his infinite wisdom, choose to put a star in the sky over the birth of his son? You see, because God is the ultimate author of Scripture, we can rest assured that there are no throwaway details in the Bible. You know what I mean by that? If you, if you read a work of fiction... You can read it and there can be some detail in the story and you're like, that's not related to anything. But because God is the author of scripture, the perfect storyteller as it were, when a detail shows up in the word of God, we know that God didn't like accidentally put it there or it got by the editors or something like that. God put that detail in scripture for a reason. So since he did... The Lord included this bit about the star in the story of Jesus' birth. We can be confident that it is there for a reason. So that raises the question, right? What's the reason? Why is it there? So glad you asked. Because I think we need to put on our detective hats, or better yet, our wise men's turbans this morning. And we can see that the star is in the story to lead us to Jesus. The star of Bethlehem has always been meant to point to something greater. In a way, the star is little more than a directional sign. No doubt the most incredible directional sign of all time, but a directional sign nonetheless. It's not significant in and of itself, but it is significant because of what it points to. Which leads me to my point this morning, very simple. We must follow the star to Jesus. That's the point of the star. The star is meant to lead us to the one to whom it points. So what on earth does this star say about Christ? It is specifically that question. I just said specifically or Atlantically or yeah, specifically, sorry. Just leaving out uh, letters as I feel see fit. It is specifically that question that we will seek to answer today. So three things I want to point out that as we follow the star, it will teach us about Jesus. Three things. Ready? Buckle up. Number one. This star teaches us that Jesus is worth the wait. The original context of number 24 is one of the weirdest stories in the Bible. It really is when you stop and think about it. It's during the time of the Exodus. And the Exodus, if you're not familiar, is is when the nation of Israel was enslaved to Egypt and they're being led out. Okay, so Moses leads them out of Egypt and they are heading towards the promised land. While they were heading on their way to the land of Canaan, one of the Canaanite kings, Balak, sees the powerful handwriting on the wall and realizes that he can't do anything militarily to stop these people from taking over his land. So Balak devises an unusual strategy to try to stop the Israelites from coming in. He hires a prophet and asks him to curse God's people. So after some persuading, Balaam, the prophet of the Lord, agrees to ask for a word from God to pronounce over God's people. So imagine the scene. Balak hires Balaam, and he says, Balaam, 
when you see this great crowd passing by, the nation of Israel, I want you to stand up on the mountain and I want you to pray to God and curse them. So Balaam says, okay, but I can only do what God allows me to say. So Balak says, that's fine. You do what you got to do, but I want you to try to curse these people. So here they pass, the nation of Israel coming through, and Balaam pronounces these words. Verse 17 of Numbers 24. I see him now, but I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehood of Moab and strike down the Shethites. Edom will become a possession. Seir will become a possession of its enemies. But Israel will be triumphant. One who comes from Jacob will rule. He will destroy the city's survivors. To summarize, Balaam prophesies that a future king will arise from Israel who will vanquish all who dare to stand against him. It's not much of a curse. Balaam, rightfully so, wanted his money back. I mean, Balaam's plan completely backfires, and here's, or Balak's plan backfires, and Balaam is pronouncing that there's coming a king. There's coming a king, and this king will rule and he will triumph. Here's why this matters. When the Lord caused the star to arise at the time of Jesus' birth, it was as if he was announcing, this is the sign that the unstoppable king that you've been waiting for has come. The star was an announcement that the unstoppable king prophesied hundreds of years in advance was now here. I see him, but not now. And when the star rises, it was if God was saying, there he is. There's the one you've been waiting for. Make no mistake, the wait for God's king was long. It was nearly 15 centuries, by the way. I mean, that is a long time. Seven times the history of the United States of America, they waited for this king to come. But listen, but as the rest of the Bible makes really plain, Jesus was worth the wait. People of God had to wait a really long time for Jesus to come. But in the end, Jesus would prove that he was everything and more that the people had hoped for. King Jesus was not just a political leader, but he was a spiritual leader who showed us how to live. King Jesus did not just conquer our present enemies. He conquered our greatest foes of, by dying on the cross on our behalf. King Jesus did not just give us national significance. He brought us eternal significance by resurrecting from the dead and giving us everlasting life. Though the coming of Christ was the climax that was centuries in the making, who of us would question the excellence of God's plan? Look, the testimony of the star of Bethlehem is essentially this. Both God's plan and God's timing are always best. Every time. God's plan and his timing are always best. Here's why that matters. We still live at a time of waiting, don't we? For although we know that Jesus is the scepter of Jacob, for which the people of God have long been holding their breath, the fullness of Christ's reign has yet to come, so we wait. We wait, and we look at our world, and we wait with some anticipation at times. We wait when a loved one in our family gets the bad diagnosis from the doctor, right? 
We, we wait when the child that we loved and pray for has gone wayward. We wait when we get fired. When death knocks on our door. When heartbreak comes in, we wait and we say with the scriptures, How long, Lord Jesus? How long? Do we have to tolerate this brokenness and this mess of the world? How long? We wait and we wait and we wait. And sometimes, if we're honest about it, we say, I'm not sure it's worth the wait. I wish you would just fix this mess now. Because I'm tired of waiting. This world is broken and I am broken. And my heart is broken. And everything I touch seems to break. Lord, when will you come back and set this right? But look. God's plan and God's timing are always best. Look, we know that. We know that. Look at history. We know that. Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4. But when the fullness of time had come... Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. If this is the case, if Jesus came the first time at just the right time, we can rest assured he'll come the second time at just the right time. Look, nerd alert. In, uh, in Tolkien's Return of the King, uh, don't laugh. It looks bad for the forces of good. Evil is about to triumph. Everything looks like it's disaster. And then, in an unexpected twist, the rightful king comes back. Aragorn has the sword that was broken. He puts it back together. He raises it and summons an army. And at just the right time, he comes rolling in and vanquishes the forces of evil. Look, brothers and sisters, if Tolkien had good timing, we can trust that the Lord has even better timing. In fact, brothers and sisters, I don't think it's too much to say we serve the God of impeccable timing. Jesus is worth the wait. Part of our waiting is learning to trust that God knows not just what is best, but God knows when is best. And the star of Bethlehem is simply a reminder that he has the timing that we can wait on, we can know. I know there is heartbreak. As I look across this room, I know there is brokenness, but Jesus is worth the wait. So brothers and sisters, keep waiting and know that God will come through when you need him to come through. Number two, not only does the star show that Jesus is worth the wait, but it shows something else about his identity, namely that Jesus is the king of kings. As you read Balaam's prophecies, it becomes clear that this king that he's talking about in Numbers 24 is not just a cherished head of state. He's not like Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln, like we respect this king. He's a good king. 
No, he's something more. Look, look again at Numbers 24. A star will come from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down the Shethathites. Edom will become a possession. Seir will become a possession of its enemies. But Israel will be triumphant. One who comes from Jacob will rule. He will destroy the city's survivors. This guy is kicking butt and taking names. And he's clearly ruling more than just a little strip of land along the Mediterranean Sea. Did you notice that? He's not just the king of Israel. He's king of more. It is evident that this king's dominion extends far beyond the borders of ethnic national Israel. It seems that the wise men came to the same conclusion. Okay, again, I need you to track with me and think carefully for a minute. As I was reading this passage... There was this repetition that showed up that I think is another allusion to the Old Testament. So look at Matthew 2, verse 2. I think it's up on the screen right here. Follow along with me. For we have seen its star at its, what's it say? Say it again. Rising. Rising. Then skip down to verse number 9. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its... Interesting. Both times they refer to the star, they refer to the star at its rising. Well, there's another passage in the Old Testament that uses similar language. It's over in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. And it says this, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen on you and all the nations shall come to your light and to the kings, to the brightness of your, what's it say? Interesting. So there's a star that rises and here there's a light that rises. I think what the wise men at least in part had in view was what Isaiah was talking about. To put it plainly, Jesus is no ordinary king. This king that is being referred to in the Old Testament, he's not just the king of Israel. He's king of everything. He is the king of kings, as it were. It seems that these foreign dignitaries had a unique grasp of the identity of Jesus. They saw that he was far more than just the heir to the Davidic throne. It seems that they recognized that Jesus was God come in the flesh. They saw more clearly than anybody else. How do we know that? Look at verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So there it is. They know he's a king. For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Whoa, buckle up. I mean, kings, yeah, they're worthy of respect, right? But you don't like bow down before. You don't worship a king. Rulers are deserving of deference. But Jesus is worthy of worship. And this is what the wise men saw. He wasn't ordinary in any stretch of the imagination. The star of Bethlehem reminds us that Jesus is not simply an influential spiritual figure like Buddha or Muhammad. He's not just a shrewd politician like Margaret Thatcher or Cleopatra. He's not even a powerful emperor like Alexander or Napoleon. He is all of these things. But he is so much more. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. 
the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the dominion of his will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now until forever. Listen, friends, Jesus is in a category all by himself. There is a category called the King of Kings and it is occupied by Christ alone. It is this truth that drove the wise men to alter the course of their lives. They saw the star and they made a multiple year journey to go see this king because they knew he wasn't just a king. He was more. They changed everything. They packed their bags. They left their home. They allowed the identity of Christ to shape everything that they did. And if we, like the wise men, truly recognize who Jesus is, we won't simply give him our admiration We will give him our adoration. We will not simply say Jesus is a good guy. We will say Jesus is the one who deserves my worship. And that's what the star and the wise men remind us. That Jesus is the king of kings and he is more than king. He is God come in the flesh and he deserves everything that we could ever give to him. Not because he needs it, but because he's worthy of it. And it is in finding our worship or giving our worship to Jesus that we find our greatest joy and satisfaction. Jesus came not to just be your Savior. Jesus came to be your God. Number three. Jesus is the hope of humanity. This is the beautiful, beautiful portion of the story. Perhaps the primary reason why the star and the wise men appear in the story of Jesus' birth is to give us a hint, just a hint of what God would eventually do through his son. Look back at Isaiah chapter 60. Remember that passage that I think they were alluding to? Isaiah chapter 60, it says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And catch this phrase, and nations shall come to your light. In other words, the kingdom of this promised one would include more than just ethnic Jews. This was, Jesus would be the hope Not for a a little national entity. Jesus would be the hope of all humanity. Prior to the coming of Jesus, for centuries, people of God had been, the people of God had been primarily restricted to one geographic area, Israel, and primarily one ethnicity, the Israelites. What the rising of the star and the coming of the wise man seem to indicate is that God had something much more ambitious in mind. In fact, the story, as the story of Jesus unfolds, it becomes clear that Christ came to rescue not just Jewish people, but people from all over the earth. And if you read through the Gospels and hear the story of Jesus, you get little appetizers, foretaste of that as you go through the story. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria and ministers not only to the woman at the well, but the entire village of Samaritans. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus heals the Roman centurion servant and commands 
commends the centurion, this non-Jewish person, for his unparalleled faith. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals a group of lepers, lepers and singles out the foreign-born man as the only one who is truly thankful. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus heals the daughter and celebrates the great faith of a Canaanite woman. Time and time again, Jesus breaks social paradigms and he reaches across the ethnic national table and says, come to me. I am the savior, not just of a little group of people. I am the savior of humanity and anyone and everyone who would ever to dare to put their hope in me can be saved. John chapter 10, Jesus says it explicitly. I love this passage. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, who are these sheep? But I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Now, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock and one shepherd. The rest of the Bible makes clear that Jesus is referring to Gentiles that he would bring into a relationship with him through his death and resurrection. Or if I could paraphrase Jesus in, in, in a little bit of modern language, I would say, I, Jesus would be saying, I have non-Jewish sheep that are not a part of the Jewish sheep pen. I have Gentile sheep. I have sheep in Atlanta. And I have sheep from Nigeria. And I have sheep from Lebanon. And I have sheep from all over the globe. And I must bring them also because I am not just a little pedantic shepherd of a little area, a little hill country. I am the shepherd of the world. They're all my sheep. I think God made the star and the wise men part of the nativity because he wanted to embed the truth that Jesus is the savior of all kinds of people in the narrative from its very inception. In other words, right there, you know, many of us have the nativity scenes in our homes and they're incorrect, right? Because we put the wise men there, but let's, you know, be gracious. We used, when I was a kid, I used to be a theological curmudgeon about this. And so when I was a kid, you know, my mom might set up the nativity scene and I'd like move the wise men over here. <laughs> two years, two years, right? So, but, but we have there the nativity scene. And, and usually you have Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. And maybe you have an angel and then you have the shepherds. And then you have these wise men. These foreigners. Right there at the beginning. That's beautiful. Because those foreigners, that's us. I mean, I don't know of anybody in here that's like, like completely ethnic Jewish. If that's you, you can be the shepherds. That's cool. But most of us in this room are non-Jewish people. And Jesus came to save us. And right from the beginning... Right from the beginning of the story, he wanted to embed that so that we would see that Christ is the hope of humanity. <laughs> the star is a reminder that the Lord has gone to great lengths to draw all kinds of people to himself. So no matter your ethnicity, your nationality, your background, your history, your family, come to the hope of all humanity, for he promises this, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Come, come to Jesus. And as we kind of wrap up this morning, 
I just want to close with where this star makes its appearance one last time in the scripture. You get to the final book of the Bible. And it's in the book of Revelation. And, and Jesus himself says this. Revelation 22, verse number 16. The last chapter of the last book in the Bible. Here comes Christ. I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David. The bright and morning, what's it say, folks? Star. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take water of life freely, come, come, come. The Savior who came, the star who announced him, boldly proclaims, this is the Savior of all. What does a star do but make something public? That is the purpose of the star, to exalt and to show the publicness of the invitation of Christ. He is not the savior of a select few, but he is the savior of all who would put their hope in him. So come, hear the words of scripture once again. Come, let anyone who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take water of life freely come. How fitting it is that when the morning star fully rises, it does so with a gracious invitation to come to him. So where does this all leave us tonight or this morning? As we reflect on the Christmas story this time of year, let's remember that the invitation of the star is still valid. We don't see the star in the sky anymore, but the one to whom the star points is alive and well. The star was never about the star. The star was about the star to whom it pointed. The star of the show has always been Jesus. And the star was just to indicate to us that we are to look for him. So, two things as I close. Simply this. Jesus is inviting you to come to him. And no matter how far from the Lord you feel... Man, if you were here to see your niece or nephew or grandkids sing and you haven't darkened the doors of the church in 25 years, great. I'm glad you're here. And the Savior still invites you to come. He's the Savior of all kinds of people. Anyone and everyone who would dare to put their hope in Jesus, he will not cast away. So come to him. Come to him. Draw near to him. The Savior invites you to come. And secondly... Just like the wise man, the Savior invites you to worship him. Now, can you imagine the scene? Here's this little toddler. And these wealthy, learned scholars from far away come and they see him. And they bow down before them. They humble themselves before this child. Well, that's the right posture, isn't it? Because Jesus invites us to reorient our lives around him. That's what the wise men did. They packed their bags. They left their home. They changed everything about them because they saw that Christ was worth it. And Jesus invites you to do the same today. Maybe you've trusted in Jesus, but is your life oriented around him? Are you bowing before him on a regular basis, kneeling and swearing your allegiance and fealty to the king of kings, the hope of humanity, and the one who is worth the wait? 
Jesus came to be our God, brothers and sisters. He came to show himself that he is the reason for the season, not in a trite way, but in a real way. We were all in desperate need of rescue, separated from God because of our sin, because of our brokenness, and Jesus came to mend that gap. So will you bow down and worship him, orient your life around him? Can we just respond this morning? The invitation of Christ is open, so come. Come to him to receive him. Come to him to worship him. So let's stand to our feet and we're going to worship the Lord. Well, I'm going to ask our prayer team to come right now. And if the Lord is doing something in your heart, if you just need some prayer about something, you look at the brokenness in your world and you have a hard time waiting. Man, we'd love to just pray with you. These folks would love to just spend a minute seeking God on your behalf. So can we just respond to the Lord by coming to his invitation this morning? Respond to him in your heart. If you'd like prayer, we'd love to pray for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that the star points to you. And I pray that we would find our hope, our joy in you. Lord, I pray that we would orient our lives around you like the wise men did and confess you as our hope and as our king. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.